Section 5 of The Primrose Path by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Melitzia. Chapter 5 How the New Life Began. When Jerry got back to the theatre, the place did not somehow look the same. There was too much tarnished gilding, he thought, and too little reality. Although the place seemed very old and dirty, so old and so dirty that after looking about him for a little time, he felt that there was room and opportunity for all his skill and energy. There was something so cheering in this prospect of hard work that he forgave the dirt and the age and longed to get into active service. The rehearsal did not take much longer, and then the various actors and employees dispersed. Mons came over to Jerry and asked him to come to his dressing room for a moment. Jerry was anxious to get home and said so. "'You need not fear,' said Mons. "'I shan't detain you a minute. "'I only want to give you what you paid for me.' "'Nonsense, man,' said Jerry, who felt almost insulted, "'for, like all Irishmen, he had one virtue "'which too often leans to Vice's side, generosity, "'and considered that hospitality was involved "'in the question of who pays. "'Of all the silly ideas that ever grew in the minds of a people, "'feeding on their native generosity of disposition,' This idea is the most silly. Let any man but think honestly how honour or hospitality can be involved in the mere payment of a few pence, and then ask himself the question in his heart of what difference there is to him between the nobler virtues of his soul and the pride of superabundant coinage. Jerry O'Sullivan was no fool, and often reasoned with himself on the subject, but still the prejudice of habit was too strong within him to be easily overcome and so he felt hurt in spite of his reason. Mons answered him suavely. No nonsense at all. I borrowed a small sum of money off you, which you kindly lent me. I now wish to repay you. Sure there isn't any need of repayment because I paid for a glass of beer. But a debt is a debt, large or small, and I don't want to remain due to any man. Jerry thought for a moment or two. The justness of the statement struck him so forcibly that he felt that any further talk would be unfair to his friend, so answered him simply, fair enough, and took the money proffered, thinking to himself what a good-hearted, honest fellow his new friend was. It was well-nigh dark when Jerry got home. He found Katie up to her eyes in work, for between settling the rooms and unpacking, and looking after the children and the supper, she had quite enough to do. She had given the rooms a thorough cleaning a thing very much required, and, as they had not quite recovered from the effects, were not so comfortable as they might have been. The floors still presented that patchy appearance which newly washed woodwork always assumes, and even the bright fire was not able to quite overcome the idea of damp thus suggested. Nevertheless, the change even to unfinished cleanliness was pleasant after the unutterable grime of the theatre, and Jerry felt how pleasant was the idea of home, albeit he regretted in the core of his heart that his real home, the place where he was born and bred, was far away. Katie bustled about, and soon the supper was ready, and in its consumption things began to assume a pleasanter aspect. All were tired and went to bed early. In the morning Jerry was up early, and round the neighbourhood looking about him. Theatrical life, save on occasions, begins late, even for the subordinates, and Jerry's services were not required till an hour, which, when compared with his habitual hour for going to work, seemed to him to be closer to evening than morning. 
At the time appointed, he was waiting to see the manager, who did not appear, however, till more than an hour after his engagement. Jerry waited with impatience for his coming. To a man habitually, as well as naturally, active in occupation, nothing is so tiresome as that of waiting. It is only the drones in the hive of life that enjoy idleness in the midst of others' work. It is the misery of all those whose work is connected with the arts that there is a spice of uncertainty in everything. It would seem as if Providence had decreed that those who soar above the level of commonplace humanity should bear with them some counterbalancing weakness to show them that they are but of the level after all. The ancients showed this idea by an allegory in the story of him who, with wings of wax, thinking himself no longer a mortal, but a god, flew close to the sun till the waxen pinions melted and he fell prone. Jerry was in no good humour at the end of his long wait, and more than once the idea occurred to him that a theatre was a very dry place. Fortunately, however, he was afraid to leave his post, or else Mr. Grinnell might have benefited by his thirst. When the manager, Mr. Meredith, came in, he spoke to Jerry in an off-hand way, telling him what his duties would be and what his salary, that he should be always up to time, that he should keep his subordinates in good order, and so forth and ended by sending him off to Mr. Griffin to find out the details of his work. Mr. Griffin was available, for the rehearsal of the day was only that of a stock piece, whose management he could trust to the hands of the prompter. He went right over the stage with Jerry, showing him the various appliances and their manner of use. Jerry's practised mind at once took in what was required in each case, and he saw his way to many improvements, to execute which his hands itched. The new style of work was not a little confusing, however, and the names of the different things got so mixed up that when he was asleep that night, Jerry kept dreaming of slots and flies and wings and flats and vampire traps and grooves and P.S. prompt side and O.P. opposite prompt side, all which got jumbled together and puzzled him not a little. He was not required at the theatre in the night time for a couple of days, and so spent the evenings at home. At last he got regularly to work, and began his task of reorganisation, commencing by trying a general cleaning up. After half an hour's work he was astonished. He could not have believed that any place could be so dirty, or that such a pile of dust and rubbish of every kind could have been accumulated into the space from which the pile before him had been removed. In the cleaning process he had got so dry that he found it necessary to have a drink, and accordingly he went to a corner of the cellar, where there was a tap to get some water. As he was about to drink, Mons, who had followed him, spoke. You don't mean to say you're drinking water at this time of day? Bedad I am. I've the thirst of the lost upon me. And Jerry raised his hands, of which he had made a bowl to his lips. Mons gave him a shove which spilled the water. Don't be an ass, man, he said. Have a glass of beer, or try Barclay and Perkins. What is Barclay and Perkins? Entire. Entire? What do you mean? I mean, my dear O'Sullivan, that you are green as your emerald island. Barclay and Perkins are two great philanthropists who aid suffering humanity by brewing a delicious liquid called Entire. Oh, I see. There is the London Guinness. Mons laughed satirically. Exactly, he said. He could not fancy anyone judging of anything except by a London standard of comparison. In the meantime, Jerry was getting more thirsty than ever, and, on Mons renewing his invitation, 
he went with him to Grinnell's, to see, as the latter suggested, whether Ireland was equal to England in brewing or not. As they were leaving the theatre, Mons stopped and said, Hold on a moment. Wait here. Or stay. Wait for me over there. I want to go up to my dressing room to get some money. Jerry accordingly went across alone to the public house. As he opened the door, his ears were greeted by sounds of strife, curses both loud and deep, falling furniture and breaking glass, and the scuffling and trampling of angry feet. Added to these was the ceaseless yelping of a dog. Jerry pushed open the door hastily and entered the house. The sight which met his eyes was not a pleasant one to a peaceably disposed man. Two men were struggling in the centre of the room, with all the intensity and ferocity of wild beasts. They were not fighting fair in the ordinary acceptance of the term, but were clutching wildly at each other's throats and hair, and were trying to scratch as much as to hit. The strife evidently sprung from no desire of mastery, but was the outcome of hatred, deadly so far as it went. Close by them a small table overturned, and a scattered pack of cards spoke volumes as to the origin of the hatred. A wretched-looking dog, whose foot had been trodden on in the scuffle, limped under the bar yelping. The only element of calmness in the room was supplied in the person of Grinnell, who, conspicuous in his white shirt-sleeves with large cuffs and gorgeous links, leaned over his bar complacently, resting his head on his hands and biting the tops of his fingers in quiet enjoyment of the scene. He knew from experience that a little emute of this kind was in no wise to be discouraged, for it always ended in drinks all round, an ending of which he, as a professional man, highly approved. Jerry could not bear fighting. He had in himself, somewhere hidden below the outer crust of his nature, a spark of warlike fire which his consciousness told him should not be fanned into flame, and so, whilst his head remained clear and his reason worked, he dreaded that which he felt in his heart was dangerous. He was, however, an energetic man, and it is not natural to the energetic to stand by inactive while strife is being carried on. Accordingly, he rushed over to separate the combatants. The part of peacemaker is a noble one, and one which no man worthy of the name should shrink from on account of its unpleasantness, difficulties, or dangers. But it has its own trials. The natural impulse of two animals, human or otherwise, when interrupted in combat, is to both turn on the aggressor, and the experience of any man will tell him how marked is this characteristic in the human animal. Jerry knew this as well as most men, for being a quiet and temperate man, the burden of peacemaking fell on his shoulders more often than on those of most of his fellows. He was not prepared, however, for the storm which fell upon him in this case. One of the combatants caught him by the hair, at which he dragged so savagely that, half to be free from the exquisite pain which it caused him, and half to end the struggle quickly, Jerry was obliged to clutch him by the throat. Having so caught him, Jerry was comparatively safe so far as this foe was concerned, for with his powerful thumb upon his throat, and able to hold him at arm's length, the struggle was a matter of moments. He was not sorry for this, for he saw that his opponent was none other than John Seabright, who, however, did not seem to recognise him. But in the meantime the second gambler was quite free and able to work out his purpose unchecked. What that purpose was, Jerry had reason to remember for many a long day, for the man, who was a stoutly built fellow enough, snatched up a chair, and, holding it by the leg in both hands, struck him over the head with it. Jerry fell quite senseless, just in time to be seen by Mons as he entered the door. 
The sight of a man lying on the floor, seemingly dead, save that he was bleeding copiously, called both the combatants to themselves, and instinctively they stopped and looked at him and at each other. Mons ran over and joined the group, and Grinnell, seeing that matters had gone a little too far, and fearing that his house would get a bad name, hurried out from behind his bar, cursing and swearing and making a great fuss. His first care was business. He was afraid of losing the custom of Jerry's victor by giving him offence, and equally afraid of getting into trouble if he did not take some active step against him. Accordingly, he took a medium course, and coming close to him, whispered, You had better get out, in case of a row. The man nodded, and taking up his coat and hat, hurried out of the place. Grinnell proceeded to act the part of the Good Samaritan to Jerry, with, however, the difference that he forced the wine into his mouth instead of his cut. It takes a great deal to knock the senses out of a man for long, and Jerry's temperate life and healthy physique stood him in good stead. In a couple of minutes he opened his eyes, and seeing a lot of strange faces round him, started into a sitting posture. The effort made his head throb, and he put his hand to it. Then he felt something strange and clammy, and looking at his hand to see what it was, saw it covered with blood. This gave him a shock, which, although it made him feel sick, still further aroused him, and he stood up. He was a little weak, and his head was swimming, so that he clutched at the stretched hands round him to steady himself. By and by he got better, and measures were taken to stop the bleeding of the cut in his head. He did not like the dressing of the rough, unskilled hands, and went off to a neighbouring apothecary to have the wound properly attended to. Seabright had vanished from the house at an early stage of the proceedings. All this took some time, so that when Jerry got home it was past his appointed hour, and the dinner was nearly spoiled in spite of poor Katie's efforts. In order to prevent Katie from seeing the wound, he pretended to be in a hurry to get back to his work and kept on his cap. Katie noticed that he was looking pale and cautioned him against working too hard and going into places that were not healthy. Jerry smiled, kissed her, and went back to his work. He was not able to do much, however, for after the rest he began to feel the real effects of the blow. He tried to work as before, but could not, and at one time got so faint that one of his men went out for some brandy, which freshened him up a bit so that he tried to work again. Again he failed, and this time almost fainted, and again the brandy-and-water cure was resorted to. Jerry was a temperate man, and the liquor thus taken at an unusual time began to have an effect on him. This made him angry, for he felt it, and having, as is known, a strong spice of obstinacy in his nature, determined not to give in to it. Therefore, instead of lying down, as Mr. Griffin, who was present, wanted him to do, he insisted in going about and talking to everyone, and generally laying for himself the foundation of a bad name and much distrust, for men never can have the same confidence in a man when they have once seen him off his head, as they had when his wits were intact. Mons took advantage of his condition to induce him to pay Grinnell another visit, for the purpose, he said, of showing the poor man that he bore him no malice for the row that had occurred in his house. Jerry was in that state when a man thinks that to say yes to everything is meritorious, and, having shaken Mons's hand several times in succession, they both adjourned over the way, followed by a little train of the hangers-on, who scented a free liquor for themselves out of all this ultra-friendliness. In the public house they found Seabright and his sometime enemy engaged in a game of cards. They had both returned on learning that Jerry was all right and had made up their quarrel. 
When Seabright saw Jerry, he rose up quickly and ran over, addressing him with much effusion. "'Why, Jerry, old man, I don't know how to look you in the face. To think I didn't know you, and that the first time we met after so long I'd be dragging out your hair, and you clutching my throat. How are you? I was waiting here, hoping to see you, and that's how the row began. Me and Popham was playing a game while we was waiting, and somehow we fell out, and... But I hope you don't mind.' Jerry was in a large-hearted mood, and answered with some thickness of speech, "'All right, old fella,' that horrid assurance of acquiescence, which is the shibboleth of the drunkard. He then forgave Popham also, who made a shambling kind of excuse for his striking him. At this stage Grinnell proposed, "'Glasses round,' in which proposition he was warmly supported by all those present, Jerry offering to pay the expense. It was late that night when Jerry got home, he was left at the door of his lodgings by Mons and Seabright, and managed to stagger upstairs. Katie, who had been sitting alone all evening, in growing anxiety for his unexplained absence, heard the unusual sound he made in ascending. She knew the step that was her husband's, and yet not his, and her heart stood still in deadly fear. She was afraid to go to the door, lest she should see something to horrify her, and so sat still. The door opened and Jerry staggered in, with hair tossed, clothes all awry, and, worst pain of all to Katie's loving heart, with the bright eyes opaque, the erect form collapsing, and the firm mouth relaxed with the drunkard's feeble maundering gape. Katie said no word, but fell on her knees, lifting her hands as she lifted her soul towards heaven for forgiveness for her poor husband. It was the first time Jerry had ever been drunk, and it struck his poor wife a blow as cruel as the stroke of death. "'Oh, Jerry, Jerry,' she moaned in her heart. "'My love, my husband, better we had stayed at home than this. Oh, God, than this!' End of chapter 5